how to improve upon the prayer that we just sang, I do not know. But before we jump into Jonah chapter 4 this morning, let's pray together. Dear Father, open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your law. Glorify yourself as we humble ourselves before your most holy, transforming word. Would you teach us to delight in the law of the Lord? Aid us to be a hearing people who are not asleep to your Spirit's work within us, personally and collectively together. And as we conclude this great book today, by your grace, cause it to lodge deeply within our hearts so that we hear the reverberant echoes of its themes for many years to come, perhaps. Change us, we pray, for your glory through Christ. Amen. I do encourage you to make your way to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Anger can be a frightening thing to witness. We have all no doubt watched the innate ugliness of a person that is just consumed in the moment by hatred toward another person. In fact, it wouldn't take long before tears would start to well up in the eyes of many seated here if we started to take an inventory of the horrible aftermath of anger. In the many ways, some of us have been on the receiving end of this kind of sin against another person. It's frightening because there is almost an animalistic Jekyll and Hyde kind of power that can consume a person, man or woman, transforming them from an otherwise amicable, reasonable individual into a beast-like monster. Anger is a frightening power to behold. And yet anger can be good if directed toward the right things. As many of you have been learning in the adult Bible class on anger and forgiveness, David Pallison outlines anger as essentially being that base response that declares internally or externally, I'm against that. I'm against that. Whenever a person's sense of justice has been violated, anger in some fashion is the natural response. So what happens when God is the one who violates a person's sense of justice? If person to person, creature to creature, anger is frightening enough, creature to creator anger is horrifying for the delusional role reversal that it demands. God You've messed up. I've had enough. Now you listen to me. You start obeying my commands from here on out. Do you hear? We might as well be saying to God, get down off that throne. Get down. I'm ready to rule your kingdom now. Christian author and writer Tim Challies, perhaps known to some of you here, experienced a bitter loss of his 20-year-old son, Nick, to cardiac arrest in the fall of 2020. 
Nick was a completely healthy, engaged to be married, eager to serve Christ, young man. And in the days and months after bearing his son, Chalice reflects on a well-meaning text that he received one night from a friend who encouraged him to rage against God. To rage against God in his grief. Paraphrasing this person's favorite grief counselor, the text read this, it's okay to be angry with God about this. It's okay to tell Him exactly how you feel about Him right now. Let Him have it. He doesn't mind. Thanking the person for their desire to be an encouragement to Him, He simply responded with this phrase. I will grieve but not grumble. Mourn, but not murmur. Weep, but not whine. See, when God stops the heart of a perfectly healthy 20-year-old young man or brings about similar tragedies and heartaches, Christians must know what is in their tool bag. That is to say, lament not anger, not anger at a holy God, lament. Lament has been simply said to be a prayer in pain that leads to trust. A prayer in pain that leads somewhere to trust. Over half the Psalms are Psalms of lament and all but one always follow that trajectory. They end in trusting confidence in God's deliverance, in His steadfast love, and in His character. Perhaps you saw that trajectory in the psalm that Josh read earlier from Psalm 42. But what a different story it is when circumstances occur that outrage a professing follower of God, violating his sense of justice, and believing God to have made a horrible mistake. This is not lament. This is a high-handed rebuke against the God of heaven and earth. And this is the state of the prophet Jonah entering chapter 4. Now throughout the book of Jonah, the prophet has lived up to his name as we discussed, acting like the silly and senseless dove acting extremely rebellious one moment and then extremely pious the next, offering an extremely grateful prayer to God one moment, only to erupt in anger at God for the very thing He praised Him for two chapters earlier, His glorious salvation. Jonah is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, as the New Testament author James will put it. Jonah is included in Scripture not as a model of exemplary faith per se, but as a warning of an ordinary faith that can be capsized by the false belief that we know better than a sovereign God. As we round the corner on this final lap through this extraordinary book together, we are reminded of this high-altitude perspective that we've discussed several times, how the book is masterfully crafted into two halves, each half having two parts, leading to and culminating into this final seventh episode 
that doesn't satisfy our storytelling expectations. But it should cause us to stop and reflect. So we pick things back up at the beginning of chapter 4, where we gain insight into Jonah's heart. So we see here, first in these first four verses, Jonah's angry prayer to God. In verse 1, simply states, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So, the original Hebrew readers would have seen and heard the irony that was front and center before their eyes or their ears. Chapter 3 ends with all of Nineveh repenting. So, ridding themselves of their ra'ah, the Hebrew word for wickedness or trouble. Their repentance leads to God relenting of His Ra'ah, the trouble that he was going to bring. The story has seemingly been resolved. All the Ra'ah has been done away with. Hooray, right? No. Turns out there's still one character exceedingly filled with Ra'ah. Trouble. God has done what he said he'd do, even through the miraculous salvation and begrudging obedience of his prophet. God has done the unimaginable in showing mercy to pagans like perhaps never before. This is cause for celebration and rejoicing, but not for Jonah. This is a you-can-hear-a-pin-drop kind of moment in the story. Things are tense. Can you believe God's own prophet has the gall to be exceedingly angry? Literally, and there was heat to him. That's what it means. And there was heat. You know, we've seen people overcome with anger. <laughs> they are worked up, probably perspiring to some degree. He was inflamed with fury. This very moment in the story of Jonah parallels the moment in O. Henry's After 20 Years, if you remember from our first week in this book together, where Bob the criminal was handed that letter by the officer posing to be his friend Jimmy. And then everything starts to click for us. Now we understand things finally and we have a window into Jonah's heart. Ah, that's what's been going on. We can see much more clearly. What would be just and fair in this situation is for God to open up another can of ra'ah on Jonah, right? For his idolatrous, godlike rant that he's about to spew. But the dove like, senseless, and silly Jonah is still a son of God's faithful love. So, what unfolds is yet again the sovereign mercy and love of God towards a very unstable prophet. Finally, Jonah's functional, true theology starts to bubble over. Jonah's exceedingly displeased and angry because a sense of justice and what is right and what is wrong has been just upended. As one author writes of Jonah's belief regarding the Ninevites, bad behavior should lead to a bad end. And, this, and Jonah takes it very badly when it does not. It would almost appear that Jonah, like virtually all other religions of the world, believes in some form, generically speaking, of karma. You do good, you receive good. That's just how the world works. Applied to his situation, he had done good his entire life, probably. 
It's his own estimation of himself. He was a man of significance. He was a prophet. He was God's counselor at some level to the king. He was a member of God's chosen people, Israel, who were, even in his own lifetime, experiencing this rising level of prosperity, militarily, financially, and so on. As a seer, one with unique insight from God and for God, he was uniquely equipped to discern right and wrong and then to speak it. Nineveh had sorely oppressed Israel. Had God forgotten this? The Assyrians were God's enemies. They were the people whom Israel would envision in their minds as they would sing and pray the imprecatory psalms. Those people. I've prayed your prayers. You told me to pray about them, God. You have royally messed things up. This is not how it works. You see in Jonah's mind, God has majorly made a mistake. God needs him as a theological advisor in this moment. Everything is wrong. His world is upside down. So in his extreme anger, we read Jonah's second prayer of the book. And oh, how different it is from the first. Verses 2 and 3 we read, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. You see, back in chapter 2, his first prayer, Jonas thanking God with all his soul for his salvation from Sheol. He's weaving together masterfully one phrase after another from 15 different psalms as he praises God for his miraculous deliverance. And why was this? Well, because God was staying in the lines. The lines that pleased Jonah. So all was well. You can almost hear the condescending tone of Jonah's words. Almost like a parent speaking down to a child who has not obeyed them. Didn't you hear my words the first time I said them, God? While I was still back in my country before you started all this mess and caused me to have to run from you? Look around at this horrible situation. We can't have Ninevites thinking that you're their God too. Come on. I can't even stomach the ridicule I'm going to face from my countrymen when they learn what I've done. All of Israel is going to crucify me for what, what's happened taking this message of repentance to these monsters. Jonah quotes from Joel chapter 2, which is taken originally from Moses' words in Exodus 34, Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. We would expect Jonah to delight in God's attributes. But his disgust from, comes from God not playing by His rules and showing love to those He hates. In verse 3, finally, Jonah's had enough. He's already offered to be cast to his watery grave back in chapter 2, only to rejoice that God spared his life. 
But now he begs God to wipe him out for good. And he doesn't, so he doesn't have to live to see his worst nightmare continue to unfold before his eyes. Essentially, Jonah's saying, over my dead body, let's get this over and done with. To reach the place where you'd rather die than accept the reality before you is to declare this, the thing I most worshipped is now lost. And consequently, I am hopeless beyond repair. The life, my life now has no meaning. May as well be ended. What was the thing Jonah most worshipped? A God who would just do His job. Namely, to love, exalt, and protect Israel while judging and punishing the nations. Is that so hard, God? That's what you're supposed to do. Has Jonah been faking his faith this whole time? It's a thought we have to ask. How can a person say they despise the very heart of God to save people from sin and still be one of God's chosen people? Well, certainly. Certainly he walks on thin ice. And from a human perspective, we have legitimate, serious concerns and questions. He's walking out of step with the truth that he knows. And rather than having no faith or a false faith, I believe Jonah most represents the instability of a selfish faith and the short-sighted deceitfulness that comes from spiritual pride. Jonah just can't see the parody that he's become, the satire that he is, receiving extraordinary mercy from God, but incapacitated by the thought of extending that very mercy to others. In verse 4, we read, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? The gracious and compassionate God whom Jonah resents now begins to ask a series of questions intended to draw out Jonah's heart. Literally, the the Lord's question means, is it causing you good that you burn with anger? (laughs) Is it causing you good that you burn with anger? Are you justifiably angry, Jonah? Many of you may be sinfully angry about something or someone even today. Perhaps you despise a boss at work who seems to have everything in life go his way while he himself is a self-consumed jerk. Perhaps a mother or father disappointed you deeply, even hurt you in terrible ways. Perhaps a friend betrayed you and you now despise them for it. Hear God's same question for your heart. Is it causing you good that you burn with anger? Even if it's a slow burn, make no excuses. God's patience is for you as well. It appears Jonah turns a cold shoulder here and just walks away from God's probing question. Is how we, we see the text just unfold. Imagine a father or mother whose son or daughter has just thrown a tantrum and the parent simply says, 
Did you think all that anger accomplished anything profitable right there? The child just marches off in the other direction. Now, many human parents, myself included, would be very tempted to say, whoa, 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 you come right back here. We are going to sort this out. But the Lord is exceptionally patient with Jonah. The counseling session now begins in earnest by means of a sovereignly appointed plant, worm, and wind. The God who rules the sea is also the Lord of the earth. So let's see now the second section here, this final episode, God's patient counsel to Jonah. That should be 5 through 11. It's incorrect. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of, of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. For Jonah, he pouts his way right into a lengthy camping trip. He makes himself a little shelter, reminiscent of what would have been built by the Israelites in the desert, wandering for 40 years. In fact, it's the same word. Nineveh had already repented, but oh, how Jonah hopes something different will transpire in the next 40 days that will bring about God's judgment. In verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. <laughs> Very emotional individual. He was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Just as the Lord appointed the fish to swallow Jonah, He sovereignly appoints a plant to rapidly grow and provide comfort to Jonah. And even if temporary, what a mercy. Right? This makes Jonah so very happy, exceedingly glad. For just as he was emotionally hot in verse 1, he is now physically hot from the sweltering heat. But once again, the instability of Jonah is on full display. One moment, exceedingly angry with God. The next, exceedingly glad for a plant. When personally benefited by God's mercy, Jonah's all in. Tremendously happy but only under those conditions. I wonder in the comfort of our modern lives, are we as up and down as Jonah, though? Doubting God and seemingly everything He's ever told us in His Word when we don't really get what we want out of our lives? Is He worthy of all of our praise when our health is good, our bank accounts are full, our jobs are satisfying, our relationships are fulfilling? But do we come unglued when health fails? Crippling expenses pile up. Our jobs deeply disappoint. And our precious relationships crumble. Is He not still worthy of our praise? Is He not still sovereign over it all? Is He not still good? But just as Jonah, or just as the Lord gives, so the Lord can freely take away. So we read in verse 7, And when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. God is indeed the Creator God, Lord of heaven and earth. He has authority 
and control over his creation. Perhaps God intends to stir Jonah's conscience a bit by inflicting on him in small portion a bit of the pain he so desperately wants to see fall on the heads of the Ninevites. As one author writes, the shoe Jonah wanted Nineveh to wear was now on his foot, and it pinched. So just as we don't know the kind of fish that swallowed Jonah, we don't know the kind of plant that grew nor the worm that ate it. These details are interesting to us, no doubt. But they can distract us a bit if we don't keep our eyes on the main idea. Jonah's discomfort is ordained of God through supernatural means to teach Jonah just how foolish and hypocritical and idolatrous his motives actually are. Verse 8 reads, When the sun rose, God appointed. Do you see the triple mention here of God's appointment of all these things? His sovereignty on full display. God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. God appointed first the plant, then the worm, now the wind. And from the belly of the fish, Jonah likely dreamed of the blessing of finally being on dry land. But now, the dry land is about to destroy him. The Near East would have often experienced storms known as Sirocco's. These windstorms, sometimes reaching 60 miles an hour, occur when the temperature rises dramatically and the humidity drops quickly and a constant, extremely hot wind with small particles of dust fill the air. Should a person be subjected to the storm, the effects on the body would certainly be difficult. In Jonah's case, he calls out for death again. Verse 9 God asks another question, essentially asking so very patiently, Jonah, you are a son of my faithful love. But son, your life is a wreck. And you don't even know it. Now may we please further our conversation about the state of your heart Jonah 9 through 11 reads here, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The Lord's question for Jonah in verse 9 is essentially the same question He asked in verse 4, but refocused here on Jonah's hyperactive love for a plant. In verse 4, Jonah seemingly walked away from the Lord's question. Here in verse 9, he screams his defiant response. I am justifiably angry, angry enough to die. On this matter, John Calvin once wrote, he said, it is certainly a most unseemly thing 
when a mere creature rises up against God and in a boisterous spirit contends with him. This is Jonah's state of mind, and it is monstrous. Monstrous as it is, God is not repulsed. So we are left wondering, though, who is the real monster in this story? The Ninevites or Jonah? Nevertheless, by destroying Jonah's favorite plant in all the world, it is funny. It's honestly supposed to be a bit comical in a cringy kind of way. God intends to shake Jonah awake from the spiritual coma that he's in. He's just lost his blessed mind and wants to die at God's destruction of a worthless weed. And he won't exhibit the smallest bit of sorrow at the prospect of God's destruction of an entire city of sinners in desperate need of mercy. Finally, in verses 10 and 11, we reach the final gut punch of the book, the very crux of the matter. To what degree is Jonah's heart like God's heart? You care about things that perish. Now, do you, Jonah? Is that what I'm picking up on? You care very deeply about a one-day-old plant. Now, do you? Jonah, you have very strong opinions. We know this for sure. But is it you that makes and sustains all life on this planet? I am the creator of both plants and people. I have authority to raise up plants and to destroy them. I also have the authority to raise up nations and to save them for my glory, should I choose. Will you trust me to be both your creator and your Savior? Not just your Savior, for your sanctioned circle of friends, but for all those I desire to save for all who will repent and trust in me. God's patient questioning of Jonah is just a master class in its own right of how to work with people who burn with anger. There is such a patient questioning, a pricking of the conscience, moving the ball forward little by little. The city here is said to have 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left. Scholars have gone back and forth on the meaning of this expression. Is 120,000 an actual population number, or is it just an ancient way of saying uh, and standing for a large number? Same way we might tell our kid, haven't I told you a million times to clean your room? Something in that vein. Is not knowing one's right hand from one's left just a general axiom for spiritual ignorance in general? referring to the moral immaturity of the Ninevites, having none of the promises and standing on nothing like what Israel is able to stand upon. Or as others have suggested, is this a reference to God's compassion extending on a city with a vast number of children so young as to not even know their right hand from their left? This would seem to cohere with the following reference to God's compassion even upon cattle which we know, in a way, participated in the citywide fast earlier in chapter 3. Regardless of what legitimate conclusion we draw here, the point 
is the same. Jonah should be praising God for his stunning compassion because of the magnitude of Nineveh's size and the level of its need. And Jonah can't or won't get it. The book's ending is abrupt. It's even strange. The last word is cattle. What happened? Why is the book done? Why aren't we coming back next week for chapter 5? We could come up with a far better satisfying conclusion, couldn't we? As Brian Estelle writes, he says, Did Jonah eventually take to heart the lessons learned from this counseling session, which was in the form of a debate with God? The text does not say. The annals of history are silent. The Scriptures are silent. And in some respects, the point is moot because the questions remain for the current reader just as they were originally directed to Jonah and Israel of old. So if these questions still remain for us today, we have to wrestle with them. Will you learn from Jonah or will you become Jonah? To what degree is our heart, is your heart, like God's heart? Friends, be amazed at the divinely designed challenges that our sovereign God brings to Jonah, even just in this last chapter, and how he lovingly and patiently shows him his sin and reveals his idolatries and seeks to convince Jonah that he's no good at all at playing God. All the while, God is perfectly accomplishing extraordinary acts of repentance and mass conversion is underway. Never think that he can do only one of the two of those. Your life as a son or daughter of God, your sometimes as erratic of a path towards holiness as Jonah's is of great importance to a sovereign God. And knowing the end of the story, though, let's seek to respond appropriately by considering together a few final reflections on the book as a whole. And there are many. I kind of wish there was a chapter 5. It would be nice to have another, another opportunity to marinate in even more of the themes of this book. So not exhaustively, but some questions for us to linger with. In the nature of God asking good conscience-oriented questions, let us ask these of our own hearts. First of all, will you run from or rest in the all-sufficient Word of God? This is where the book begins. And we're not receiving divine speech as Jonah did, right? But nonetheless, when God speaks, do you run or receive? Even now, when you hear God speaking in and through His Word, is your mind and heart on the run from Him? Regardless of one's age here. We all recognize in our present day, we live in the age of distraction. The age of distraction. People know better than to worship at the feet of Almighty Father screen time. Pun intended. And Almighty Father screen time's relics appear virtually in every sphere of our lives. His deity wields more power in our land than perhaps any other god. 
Father, screen time is worshipped, not directly, but, but indirectly. Give Him your time and, and your money and your attention and your schedule, your sleep, and your ability to be physically present and mentally engaged. He drugs His worshipers with listless, lifeless passivity that says, come to Me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you one more episode. This is the cry. This is the compelling nature of the God of our day. Now, obviously, I'm overreaching here. I'm hyperbolizing. But technology is a common grace gift from God and can and should be used joyfully and appropriately. But do not think about your devices in a way that is disconnected from the concept of your worship. Have you crowded out your life so much that prioritizing God, His people, His kingdom, the Great Commission, and God's heart to redeem the most broken people of the earth gets merely a shoulder shrug? This is the effect of a dulled world, bombarded with information, and somehow we're not more animated by it. We're just tired and overrun. What is of utmost importance to us is our downtime, our personal comfort, even the sense of isolation we feel we need from others so we can get that level of control to watch what we want, be it sports, shows, whatever. Let us learn. Let us learn something from Jonah and not become Jonah who heard God's Word and ran from God's presence so his idolatries might be held intact. Rest in the all-sufficiency of God's Word. And when God speaks in and through the Scriptures, listen. Let us hear and obey. Position yourself more ably to be a hearer and a doer of the Word. Second, will you identify and repent of the idols at work in your heart? Understandably, Jonah despised the Ninevites. They were a wicked, perverse people, enslaved to false gods and merciless toward their enemies. But even as a prophet skilled in the Scriptures, he resembles the Pharisees of Jesus' day who claimed expert status in their knowledge but were dense enough to behold the very face of the Word made flesh, God's Messiah, and conclude with their expert status, He should be killed. Jonah's idolatrous heart hijacked the Scriptures, repurposed them to validate his hatred, and self-confidently believed he could see more accurately than God. Do you hate certain people or groups of people? We can't not ask that question and read Jonah. We live in an increasingly polarized day. And ideas have consequences. And some really horrible ideas are reaping really horrendous consequences in our day. And it is right for Christians to speak up on various topics in appropriate ways. But recognize, even Christians and quite frequently make a game of expressing their public outrage. It's quite fashionable to roast people you disagree with, posturing for internet glory, 10 seconds of fame, and all the rest. Be watchful you don't grow so enamored with the myths and endless genealogies of our day as Paul warned in his day 
that you lose a perspective of what is of chief importance. And how will you know? How will you know if things are out of whack? Well, it won't come from your own self-analysis, probably. Ask those who love you. Ask those who truly, at the end of the day, care for you. They'll probably have a better assessment. Be watchful against idolatries of heart that breed hate within our hearts for those God may well desire to save. Will we, like Jonah, self-confidently instruct God on how to best run our lives and the world in general? Will we cast down the idols of our hearts and yield before a sovereign and loving God? This book eliminates the idea of deism. That there is some distant God who sets everything in motion, but then just trusts humanity to figure things out. Jonah depicts a God who is sovereign over everything. The earth, the actions of men, the conversion of the wicked, even Jonah's own personal life before God. Nothing is outside of his precise control. What hope? He can be trusted. No matter what assails us as His people, His plan is supreme. He is working all things according to the counsel of His will. And not a single maverick molecule in all of creation moves without His providential guidance. He is to be trusted, brothers and sisters, in all things. Love the sovereignty of God, especially in your suffering. May God help us to humbly identify and investigate those idols of our hearts so we might repent and imitate God's heart in all aspects of our lives. And thirdly, will you imitate God's heart for sinners by exalting Christ, the greater Jonah? When we read the book of Jonah, he is no exemplary prophet. But in each way Jesus draws upon Jonah's life in the Gospels. He never uses Jonah as a warning. Jonah himself. Do not be like this man. Jesus never says this. Instead, it almost reads as if Jonah is neutral or slightly positive in some respects. Jonah's near death and resurrection from the realm of the dead prefigured Jesus' own death and resurrection. Jonah's preaching was an example of powerful preaching as the Ninevites were examples of powerful obedience and faith. Our Christ, the one greater than Jonah, who is saving men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation, uses the ministry of the Word to accomplish even through selfish prophets the exaltation of Christ's, Christ's work. How great is the redemptive love of God, brothers and sisters, both for Jonah individually and for all who come to Him in faith. So why run any longer? Come to Jesus. James and Janet Payton lived in the early 1800s in Dumfrieshire, Scotland, they had little earthly possessions, but had a sincere faith in the gospel of King Jesus. They had 11 children who witnessed the sincerity 
of their mom and dad's faith, their love for church history and the ancient stories of courageous saints in bygone days. And the children witnessed the vibrant prayer lives of their parents. Two of James and Janet's sons would become pastors, and from their family would flow four generations of missionaries. One of their sons, John, would become one of the great exemplars in recent history of taking mercy to monsters. Peyton served as a missionary in the New Hebrides Islands near Papua New Guinea, knowing full well that just a few years before, missionaries John Williams and James Harris had landed on those same island shores only to be grotesquely slaughtered and eaten by cannibals. In fact, so famous were these islands for violence that when Peyton announced his intention of bringing the gospel to the New Hebrides, an older gentleman in Scotland famously exclaimed, the cannibals, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. And Peyton gave his very memorable response. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. I don't think Jonah ever spoke words like that. And even if he did, he didn't live them out, right? While we long to raise up more John Paytons and godly homes that exalt Christ and His Word, and we should aspire to that, the reality is there are probably as many Jonas as there are John Paytons in the church. And ultimately, our life isn't to become either one of them. Our life is to be conformed to the Savior of which we live and move and have our being. And in the gospel that is promised that will shake the very gates of hell as the conquest of the gospel goes from one monster-like people to the next, transforming powerfully by His grace. So will you hear the Word of God and obey? by giving and sending and praying and supporting the saving message of Christ crucified to all who need it, from your neighbor to the remotest people of the earth. Let us trust, brothers and sisters, in a sovereign God. Let Him be God. And watch as He uses us for His glory and our joy. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would help us learn from Jonah that despite his selfishness, You used him powerfully. And what hope that brings us. Broken, selfish, idolatrous sons and daughters of Your faithfulness who fly about our lives like senseless doves. We can still be used of You and can still know You, can still receive mercy for ourselves. But would You unmask our pride so that we might see the error of our ways and run to You for cleansing? Would You raise up another generation that longs to go and to take Christ to the hardest places of this earth 
But help us to have the joy of establishing more and more healthy churches through this church to accomplish this very goal so that the fame of our God would cover the earth as the waters fill the sea. Find us faithful to this cause until you return. In Christ we pray. Amen.